we normally look at the birth of Jesus and, and, and think about it and be like, okay, Jesus uh, w- was born and we, we, we appreciate, you know, what he did, that he came to earth and he was born. And, and so we see that, but there's so much more behind everything that took place with that, with Jesus being uh, born. So let us turn to Genesis. So let us turn to Genesis real quick. And as we turn to Genesis, we'll go ahead and uh, from Genesis, we'll come back into to Matthew. So, so turn with me. Oh, and uh, uh, the, the children that need to be released, the children being released? No, uh, were they still going to be released or not? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. No, I wasn't sure we were or not. Okay. Uh, so in the Gospel of, uh, or the Gospel of Matthew, what we'll be talking about. But in Genesis is where I'm going to begin. So the reason I'm, I'm starting off with Genesis is because a lot of times we think and we see that just, okay, the birth of Jesus is where, where this is beginning at, and this is in the New Testament. But from long ago, this was already predetermined by God what was going to take place. And so if you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, and I will begin in Genesis chapter 3. To, to draw the picture for us, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So if you're there, you can say, uh, amen, amen. Amen. So now, we, we look around and we, we think about, you know, Christmas being, uh, being a time where we're celebrating Jesus' uh, birth. And, you know, we also see signs that say that Jesus is the reason for the season, so so we know then that, that Christmas is all about Jesus, and, and when we talk about the scriptures, the Bible, the Bible is about Jesus as well, points us to Jesus. So so we don't just begin to learn about Jesus in, in, in the New Testament, but from the Old Testament as well. Now, when we look at Genesis chapter 3, there is a, a, a picture that's being drawn for us. First is that this is uh, the creation account where, where God is creating everything. And, and as he gets to the point where he creates uh, Adam and Eve, he gives them one thing that they should not do, which was to, to eat of the tree that would bring them knowledge of good and evil. He says, you could eat of any other tree, the fruit of any other tree, except this one. But what ends up happening is that Eve was deceived by the serpent, which is Satan himself. And so when we look at this text right now, this is the backdrop to what we're reading right now, is that we get to the point of chapter 3 in God's story where Adam and Eve have sinned against God. They were deceived then by the serpent. And so now, because of their act of disobedience, sin has entered into the world. Now, Sin is that which distorts now the image of God in creation, in Adam and Eve, in God's creation, which is Adam and Eve. And now that breaks the relationship between us and God. Adam and Eve will experience death. And all those who are descendants of Adam and Eve will also inherit Adam's fallen nature. Therefore, all of us 
each one of us are not only born in sin, but love to sin. So you and I, at the end of the day, need saving from this. So I'm painting this as a backdrop because it's going to be important when we get into the Gospel of Matthew. So now, chapter 3 then is a very important part that happens here in Genesis. We get to chapter 3, verse 15. And this is what the Bible teaches. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This right here, family, is the very beginning. In the very beginning, the first gospel proclamation, the first proclamation of the gospel. We see that everything had fallen apart right here. Adam and Eve were given these simple instructions, but yet they drifted away. They, they acted out in disobedience and they sinned against God. And because of that, all of the human race then has, has also inherited that same sin, that fallen nature. And if you notice, if you notice, you could tell that there's something broken in us, that, there, that, that our nature is bent in a way that, that, that is sinful, that does things that are not right. Um, you could take a quick example like our children. We don't need to teach our children how to lie. We teach them how to tell the truth. Why? Because it's in their nature already to lie. We don't teach our children to be greedy. We teach our children to share, right? Because by nature, they're already, that's mine. It's, it's already embedded in them. So all of us are born that way, each one of us. And so what we see here is that what, what happened with Adam and Eve is that because of that, each one of us now has been impacted by their act of disobedience. So now, at this place, at this point, everything seems hopeless. Everything seems hopeless, it seems lost, it seems dark, because they have rebelled against God. And as we read through the text, it talks about how they covered themselves because of shame, because of guilt, because they had sinned against God. But their failure or their disobedience does not push away God to where God gives up on them. This is where the good news comes in because God pronounces his redemptive design for humankind. It is God's rescue mission that he would send a messianic deliverer, a descendant of the woman. So when you look at the text, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God right now is speaking to the serpent that is Satan. And he's telling them that I will put enmity between you and the woman, the offspring of the woman, which is Eve, the descendants of Eve. Now, we look at the text and it's also saying the, the descendants of uh, Satan. So we have two lineages that are taking place here. Other translations will use a word for offspring as the seed. Now, follow with me because this is 
stuff that is, I mean, you, you go to, uh, you know, theological universities to, to learn some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. And so we get it for free in here. We're not having to go pay anything. We're, we're learning what the scriptures are teaching here and it's very crucial for us. So the woman's offspring, which is the woman's seed, follow with me, in the woman's seed, it says, I will put enmity between both of you, but it says that your seed, your offspring, keep that in mind, and the Satan's offspring. Now look at what it says right after that. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now he, again, speaking in reference to Jesus, shall bruise your head. Remember, God is talking to the serpent right now. And he's telling them that Jesus will crush your head. Follow with me, because the next part it says, and you, again speaking to the serpent, shall bruise his heel. So what is that saying then? Her seed is Jesus. Now, what will that seed do or the offspring do? God makes a promise that this Jesus, the seed, will come, will one day come where he will crush the serpent's head. Now, the seed of the woman will crush Satan's head. What is this saying? That Jesus will be victorious over Satan. Now, when, when it's talking about that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, that is the picture that we get at crucifixion. Jesus will experience the bruising of the heel, meaning Jesus doesn't die because he's being bruised in the heel, but he will experience pain. He will experience pain when he suffers and he dies at the cross. But Satan will lose the battle because the, the power that Satan has over people is through death, the fear of death. But what happens to Jesus when he was in the tomb? He defeated who? Death. Is that three days later he rose again, defeating death. Therefore, Jesus will have victory over Satan and over sin and over death. That's why in the scriptures it says in 1 Corinthians, it says, Death is swallowed up in victory. And it says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Again, because the picture that we find in the very beginning of the Bible, in the very beginning of creation account, we're seeing already God pronouncing his redemptive plan for humanity. Although all things looked like they had just fallen apart, like they lost all hope, God still brings redemption. The grace of God, the gospel, then is seen in Genesis. So it's not just in the New Testament 
but we see it in Genesis. So now, what is this saying to us? This gracious promise is the very theme that flows through the whole Bible. Follow with me because every character and every event in the Bible has this one theme about the conquering seed, which is Jesus. Every story, the story of Abraham, points us to Jesus. The story with Abraham when he was going to sacrifice his son, you remember that? That points us to Jesus because there will be a day, there was a day where finally the father did crucify the son, did bring the knife to the son. When we talk about the story of David, King David fighting Goliath, David is a broken, sinful king. He had committed adultery, he had murdered, he did all of these things. But he was not the perfect example of a king. He pointed forward to the perfect example who that king was going to be, which is Jesus. Now, Goliath, that is a picture of, of, of the greatest enemy that we have, which is Satan. So King Jesus defeats Satan. Every picture in the Bible points us to Jesus. So now, when we're looking at this, is this is the conquering seed that was provided by God in Genesis chapter 3. And this conquering seed is given for sinners like us. So now we get to our text in Matthew chapter 1. Now Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Now as I read the text, keep what I just said in mind as the backdrop to what's taking place here. God pronounced a promise of this seed. And in the Old Testament, the seed was concealed. In the New Testament, this conquering seed will be revealed. Now follow with me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, let's pause for a moment. Look at what's going on already with the story. Is that Mary was already pregnant before she was going to get married with Joseph. Now, the baby that she's carrying does not belong to Joseph. Because if it belonged to Joseph, we wouldn't see that he's trying to put her away slowly and quietly. That he didn't want to bring shame to her. No, he, he was doing that because he's like, Mary, wait a minute, you're pregnant. Like, how, what, what happened here? But you know what? He cared for her so much, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll do it quietly so that I don't shame you. Because if you are in, in the culture that they lived in, 
that would have been enough to have stoned her to death. So follow with me. Look at, he's caring for her. Although he's like, man, that's not my child. But I'm still going to care for you that much. But now notice that what happens next, verse 20. But as he considered these things, as Joseph is thinking about these things of what he needs to do, look at what happens next. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Look at how God is involved in the details of their life. Look at what happens. Saying to Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So it is the Holy Spirit, verse 21, and she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. The name means something. Back then, they carefully chose names, right? Now today's like, I know, I'll pass on my name, you know. What does it mean? I don't even know. You know but, but back then, it, it, it meant something. And so he's saying that they will, that his name will be Jesus, and, and that his name Jesus actually means Lord of salvation. So follow with me. So you will name him Jesus, for he will do what? He will save his people from their sins. What we see here then, family, is that the reason that Jesus was born was to save people from their sins. So when we see Jesus is the reason for the season, that's the reason for the season. That Jesus came to save us from our sins. So now remember what's going on in Genesis chapter 3 where God pronounces this promise of his redemptive plan. The conquering seed is now revealed in Jesus Christ. Hope is stepping into a dark place. There is order coming to this place that is chaos. You see, God sent his son as a savior from sin. God addresses humanity's greatest need, which is to be reconciled back to God. Because it is sin that separates us from God. Now, I want you to notice something, though. God did not send someone to save them or us from our present circumstances. We did not need a Savior to save us from the economy collapsing. Not he would have sent, like, maybe a financial advisor to us. He didn't 
send someone to save us if we had problems with the law. He would have probably sent us a legal advisor. Maybe marriage problems, he would have sent us a marriage counselor. Maybe we had problems with our health, he would have sent us a physician. But it wasn't that that was our greatest need. Our greatest need was to be reconciled back to God, and our greatest problem was sin. That's why Jesus came, to save us from our sin. For it is sin that separates us from God. So we usually first come to God for wrong reasons. Follow with me through this thinking. Most of the time, why do we come to God? Maybe troubles in our life. Maybe sickness. Maybe broken relationships. Maybe finances. Maybe we're trying to be successful in our job. Maybe it's our marriage. But if we pay close attention to our own prayers, and we think about you hear your own self praying, says, me, myself, and don't forget about I, right? It usually goes something like, Lord, can you help me? Lord, can you deliver me? Lord, can you help me at my job? God, can you bless me with this? God, can you help me to put up with my husband or my wife, right? Like, we're always thinking about us. Ways that I don't have to stress anymore. Whatever our present situation may be, we ask God for deliverance from that, for salvation from that. So, for example, to some, singleness might be a place that you consider it to be like a description of hell. You don't want to be single. You, you're afraid of being alone. Therefore, marriage becomes your savior. You think that if you get married, it will save you from the problems that you have of being single. But we know that doesn't happen for all, uh, us that get married, right? The problems continue. <laughs> They don't go away. It doesn't, you're like, oh, Lord, why did I get married then? I'm like, well, did you or did you not want to get married, right? So that's what begins to take place. But now, follow with me because maybe a place of depth that you might have. It can be a hell for you. So your Savior can be more work or maybe credit cards that help you get out of that debt, but you create more debt. You see, we can turn to different things to be a way of escape. And each one of these things are our functional saviors. They are not meant to rescue you and save you. Only Jesus saves. But we have to deal with the sin issue first. You see, this is not something that's popular amongst many churches. You know, I don't want to talk about sin. I want to talk about the good things in life. Well, 
in order to understand the good things in life, you got to understand just how broken and jacked up we are. We need the saving grace of God. Therefore, the message that the angel brought was not that God was going to bring to you a political figure to deliver you from crisis. No, God was going to bring to you a Savior to save you from your sin. So now I pause for a moment. We come to this place of a reality that God is delivering us from our sin. Not from the sin of the person next to me, because they might have many, but you have a lot as well. Not from the person across from you. No, God comes to deliver us from our own sin. I remember when the Lord first showed his mercy and grace to me. I remember being at my mom's house and, and God finally showed himself who he was to me. And at that very moment, I saw that I had been sinning against God, that I had been offending God, that my life and my actions and my words were offensive to God. And that became personal because now I said, Lord, I sinned against you. Not everyone else or anyone else. Yeah, I might have messed up here and there. But at the end of the day, my sin was against you. And at that very moment, the Lord reminds me of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. His death now became personal to me. Because it's like, Jesus, you died for me. You died for me because now I'm owning up to my mistakes. I'm owning up to my sin. And now I'm able to appreciate what Jesus has done for me. So we get to that place where it's saying that Jesus came to rescue us from our sin. But how does he do that? How does Jesus save us from our sin? And that's when we get to our next point, which is, Jesus is our propitiation. Now, the word propitiation, at first I used to struggle to say that word. Remember, Brother Mo? Like, I used to struggle to say that word. I was like, why do they got to use that word? Well, that word carries a powerful truth. Propitiation means to appease or turn away someone's wrath. So let's say you're wife has this anger towards you. Her wrath is towards you. And all of a sudden, something takes place that it turns away from you. So her position towards you changes. She no longer has this wrath towards you, right? Now she's showing mercy towards you. Now she's forgiving you. So it is this turning away of someone's wrath. So when we speak about it in the context of the scriptures with Jesus, it is in reference to God's wrath has to be turned away by a payment of the penalty for sin. Jesus' sacrificial death satisfies the very wrath of God. Now, when we talk about, like, hey, well, what, 
why we got to talk about, you know, Jesus dying and, and Jesus' wrath? And, like, why can't we just talk about, you know, God's love? And, and, and so if, if we speak of, of the gospel and, and, and we remove the death of Jesus, there's no gospel no more. The death of Jesus is the very heart of the gospel. And so when we think about Jesus dying in our place, Jesus taking our place, and, and all of what I'm doing is helping us to grab the word propitiation a lot better, to, to grip it, to understand it, and to see its significance in our life. So when we think about Jesus taking our place, him being our propitiation, it's in reference to Jesus dying for us. Jesus saving us. But now, there's, there's an illustration, a little story that I had read that I want to share with you. And, and this is to kind of help us to make a little bit more sense of this. I, I get this from a, a, a pastor up in New York, and he, he, he quotes this. He says, uh, imagine uh, a boy and a girl. And they're walking along a riverbank, and they're in love. The boy says to the girl, I love you, and to show how much I love you, I'm going to jump into this river and drown. But that's irrational. In order to prove love, the loved one must benefit from the dying in some genuine way. If, however, the girl were drowning in the river, and then the boy says, I love her, and I will dive in there and risk drowning and rescue her, then that would make sense. Unless there is some objective benefit coming to the girl as a result of his dying, it is nonsense to talk about his death as being an example of love. So when we talk about Jesus dying, he is taking our place because we were in that river drowning. We were the ones drowning and we could not save ourselves. Jesus rescues us. But see, the thing is that when we looked in at the picture is that Jesus had to die. Why? Because he died for us. We deserve to be in that place. So then when we talk about God's love for us, God's love is magnified at the cross. It is made sense at the cross. When we speak of God, about God loves you, God loves you, and we remove the fact that he died for you, and he died for you because your sins had offended him, then we are belittling the powerful cross. So when we talk about Jesus, the reason for the season, there is a lot more that goes with it. That Jesus, when we look at him, that he was born, and we're like, oh, mira que bonito, right? Yeah, what? That's what I said, right? It's not just que bonito. No, 
that he is Lord and he is going to die for our sins. And he did die for our sins. But he had to come and he was to be born. And he lived a life that we could never live. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. So Christmas is about Easter. You follow with me? Christmas is about Easter because what happens at Easter? Jesus is crucified. Yeah, the cross. And he's resurrected in power. So when we think about Christmas, let us not separate what happens at the cross. So now, now that I've drawn that picture for us, let us go to Romans chapter 3. I had to draw that picture for us because when we read through this part of the Bible, we'll just like run through it, man. Like, like if nothing, we're like, wait a minute. Let's squeeze out of it. Let's slice it up like, you know, like, like we would a piece of fajita or something, right? Like, because we want to savor on it a little bit more. We want to taste how delicious it is. And that's what we want to do with Scripture, with the Word of God. We don't want to just read through it. We want to slow down, dig into the text, and what is the Bible saying? So now, let us look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 25. Now, this is what the word of the Lord says. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, it says, all have sinned. Everyone has sinned. Mary, the mother of Jesus, has sinned. Follow with me. Any spiritual person that you think is up there, everyone has sinned. The Pope has sinned. Everyone has sinned. The only perfect one was Jesus, who was sinless. So when Paul is saying, for all have sinned, everyone is included in that all. It is a universal condition of humankind. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. They're justified by his grace as a gift. That word justification it means to be declared in a right standing before God. So look at what it's saying. You've been declared to be in a right standing before God by his grace as a gift. It is not by your human merits. It is not by your human efforts. It is not by that. It is a gift from God. It is grace from God. That's how you and I have been justified. It doesn't mean that now you got to work your way up to the place where you're finally saved. Each one of us will be tired and exhausted. Have you tried? Think about a relationship when you're trying to please somebody and they're never happy with you. You get exhausted. You get tired. I'm always trying to impress my boss. And he's never happy with it. A lot of times we'll think of God the same way. 
We're trying to impress him. We're trying to do all of these things. But it's not that that God is looking to. It is this that God is looking to. It is a gift that he's providing for us. And that gift comes, as the Bible says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When we think about redemption, it is a picture that is being drawn of slaves being purchased and freed. When we speak of redemption, it's a picture of slaves that have been purchased and they've been freed. And that is what Jesus is doing. But how is he doing this? And I love this. Verse 25. Whom God put forward. Who put forward? God. It wasn't us. It wasn't our brilliant idea to like, you know, I'm going to come to church and that's why I'm the one that did this. No, no, no. God has been pursuing you. If you're here today, it's not because of you, but because of God. And so it says, it is God who put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So this propitiation, it says by his blood. When you look in the scriptures, especially in Paul's letters, the Apostle Paul in his letters, and you see the words by his blood, the Apostle Paul is directly making a reference to the bloody cross. To the bloody cross of Jesus Christ when he was crucified on Calvary. He is drawing a picture of Jesus placard on the cross. That is the image that we get. When we read it in the, our English language, it loses a lot of that. But that's why I'm wanting to, to really dig in, kind of describe it for us. Because this propitiation had to take place by the sacrifice of Jesus. And now, look at the way you receive it. It says, you receive it by works? Is that what it says? You receive it by your good charm? You receive it because you were born into a religious family? It is insane into that. It says you receive it by faith. By faith. So the only thing that separates you and I from receiving this gift is not your works, but faith. Faith working in and through us. And it is not faith in faith because that's, again, trusting in yourself. It is faith in God, in his provision for us. So what we learn is that God has dealt with our sin so that he can show us mercy. And he removes our guilt and the remission of our sins. It is through the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we who believe upon him is by God's own gracious act delivered from justly deserved wrath. And now we come into the covenant of God's grace. Now, follow with me in this family. Because we, by nature, are, how can I put this? Um, we can be very religious people, by nature. Like, I have to do these things to earn 
my respect or earn my love. Like, this is the world we live in. You have to do, do, do in order to be appreciated or in order to earn or maybe move up in position. In God's economy, there was nothing that you can do. Therefore, God did for us. So when we talk about being justified, when we talk about being saved, it is not that you have to try harder. No, is that you have to realize that all your good works are still stained by sin. There's still selfishness in us. We're still jacked up. We're still corrupt. There's still brokenness in us. There's still sin in us. No matter how much we try to cover it up, we can say, well, you don't understand. Like, it's is, is them over there. They're the ones that are provoking me. But you don't understand this because this has taken place. But I want you to slow down for a moment and realize that I, myself, you, yourself, we all have sinned against God. And we all needed the sacrifice of Jesus. And so Jesus' sacrifice then opens up the door. Now, look at what happens in 1 John because 1 John also uses this word propitiation. Now, I love the way this is being drawn for us because in Romans, the Apostle Paul is making reference to, to sinners who are saved by grace. These are, these are now believers. But he's saying, you came to believe because Jesus was your propitiation. But now look at what John is doing. John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Look at what the Word of God says. My little children, this right here is telling you that he's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not, what? Sin. So that you may not sin. Man, that's kind of hard. Because... Did any of us sin before we got here this morning? Yeah, I'm sure we did. Yeah, thank you for being honest, man. Praise the Lord. So we've sinned. But look at what he says next. But if anyone does sin, oh, I'm like, thank you, Lord Jesus. Because hope is brought in. Notice. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. That blows my mind. It says that Jesus is our advocate before the Father. The word advocate is saying that he is our defender before the Father. He's defending us. Now follow with me. Imagine a courtroom setting. What does the Bible say that Satan is? The accuser of the brethren. He is the one that's accusing us day in and day out of all the things that we do wrong. He's not going to do that because, hey, you're being obeying God. I mean, he might try to do that getting into your head and Get you prideful, right? Look at me, spiritual me. So in all, all kind of ways that he can come at you. But the thing is that he will tempt us. So 
so that we can fall. And then guess what? He's going to begin to accuse us. When you sin, what normally is going on in your heart? You feel guilty about it, right? Feel bad. And depending on the gravity of the sin or depending on who you've sinned against is how bad we feel. And we'll feel guilty and everything. And Satan would continue to try to accuse us, filling our hearts with guilt and condemnation. And this usually leads us to a place of despair. Now, but in the same courtroom picture, we have Jesus, the advocate. Jesus, the advocate, who is defending us. So as Satan tries to accuse us, follow with me, because the picture that we see is that Jesus is defending us. And so when Satan is trying to say, hey, but wait a minute, Sergio sinned this way, Jesus said, yeah, but I paid for that sin. Hey, wait a minute, Joe sinned this way. Yes, but I paid for that sin. But you don't understand, Howard did this, yeah, but I paid for that sin. Do you follow with me the weight that this carries? Because Jesus points to that bloody cross. Propitiation has taken place for you and I. So as Satan tries to accuse us because you're not a fit mother, because you're not a fit father, because you weren't there for your kids, because I had that with my childhood. My, my son, he didn't grow up around me. And I remember, oh, they, they would throw that in my face. And I don't remember, don't forget where you came from. Yeah, I don't forget where I came from. But I know where I'm at today because of God. And so... God has forgiven me for my past, present, and future sins. Hallelujah. Propitiation has taken place. When Jesus was on the cross, he didn't say, well, I'm just going to die for these sins right here, the little ones. But the big ones you, has, you still have to work for. Jesus, when he was on the cross, he says, it is finished. Everything has been complete. There's nothing else that you and I have to do besides receive the free gift of God. So now, Jesus points to that cross. Therefore, our hearts are moved with marvel and wonder at what Jesus has done and continues to do for us. The sufficiency of the death of Jesus Christ for us. Look at the text where it says now, Jesus Christ the righteous. Not only does the Apostle John point to the death of Jesus, but he's also pointing to the life of Jesus, the very grounds upon which you and I are justified. Follow with me. You and I did not just need to have our sins forgiven. We also needed perfect righteousness to enter into heaven. Coming into heaven is not just about your sins being forgiven, but it's also about perfect righteousness before God. And you and I don't have that. But Jesus does. That is the grounds upon which you and I are 
declared to be in a right standing with God. We are justified. Just as if I had never sinned and just as if I had always obeyed. Justification. The sufficiency of, of Jesus' work on the cross. So John points to Jesus' life and John points to Jesus' death and he says, because of that, he is defending you. He's advocating for you. And no longer do you have to look elsewhere, family. And this is where we land with our last point, which is the gospel promise for us as Christians. The gospel promise for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first one is because, because of Jesus' life and death, you and I are given a new life. No longer are you and I identified by our past. Our friends and family do good at reminding us of that. But we're reminded of what God has already said about us. It is not the opinion of man that weighs down on my heart. It is the opinion of God. That's what matters to me. I'm not no longer governed by the opinion of man. Grace has liberated me of that. It is now who I am in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect life. A new life given to us. But not only are we given a new life, we're given a new heart with new desires. Now all of a sudden you begin to care about the things that you never cared about before. You are pursuing the one who you never would have thought you would have been pursuing. Like 15, 20 years ago, you tell me that I would have been here ministering the gospel of Jesus behind a pulpit. I would have thought that was crazy. That was ludicrous. Oh, Back then, I was a hater of God, rebelling in the things of this world. But yet, God came to me in my most darkest hour. And he rescued me, gave me a new life and a new heart. But not only does he give you a new life and a new heart, but he forgives, of our, forgives us of our sins, past, present, and future. He gives us eternal life. There's life after death. And this life after death is that we will spend eternity with God. And so now when we think about that, New life, new heart, new desires. We've been forgiven for all of our sins. We now can look to God every day, day in and day out. You fell God in one way or another, don't stay there. Run to the cross. Satan wants to keep you there so that you can continue to beat yourself down. He wants you to feel bad about yourself and stay there. But you see... We have to be reminded of the cross. Jesus is our propitiation. And because of that, God is not there like, mm, mira, la regaste otra vez. You messed up again. Nah, we can thank our friends to remind us of all the times we fell, right? But God doesn't look at us that way. Why? Because of the cross. So when we talk about the love of God, we can't separate it from what he did at the cross. 
Because at the cross is the greatest picture shown to us of love, both of justice and love, both of wrath and love, both of mercy and judgment. 